Hello, everyone. This is Let's Get For Real, a podcast all about cats and dogs and what they mean to us. I'm Susan Michaels, the creator of the two biggest events in the world celebrating pets and pop culture, CatCon and Cat Art Show. Today, we're going to talk about the chonk. Is your pet chonky or obese? Yep, 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 yep. We're talking about fat cats and dogs on this episode. How to tell if they're fat, what breeds are most likely to get fat, and how maybe we can help them get the right amount of healthy food and exercise. I personally want to talk about this issue because I have been seeing more and more and more fat cats on social, and they more often than not are using the term chonky. Yes, it's a wonderful term of endearment for those kitties with a little bit of extra chunk. One of those in particular is this gray kitty that you may know named Cinderblock. Are you working out? Oh, good girl. That's good work. That kitty sound was Cinderblock being all of us with her total lack of enthusiasm for exercising. She's on an underwater treadmill at that point, and we will share the video as well for you to take a look at in all of its glory. Before we start talking about the chonk and obesity and knowing the difference, um, let me say that Cinderblock is a cat well on the road to physical redemption. She is under the careful guidance of a vet after she was brought in by someone who could no longer care for her. She was a victim, alas, of overfeeding from a previous owner. And slowly and carefully, she is slimming down with a veterinarian in Washington. So let's get back to the chonk. That word. It leans towards cute, endearing, and sometimes cuddly. But what does it mean in terms of proper health and proper diet? Is sharing cute pictures of them harmless fun, or is it ignoring a serious health issue? To talk about this issue, we went to Dr. Ernie Ward, in case you don't know who he is. He is an internationally recognized vet known for his work in the areas specifically of pet obesity and nutrition and how we can extend their lives and make them live long, happy, healthy lives with us. He is also the host of the podcast Veterinary Viewfinder, And his most recent book is called The Clean Pet Food Revolution. I started my conversation, which you were about to hear, by asking why he became so passionate about taking care of animals and the issue of pet obesity. And full disclosure, he is not a fan of the word chonky. So thank you so much for joining us today, um, Dr. Ward. Um, Before we get into the whole thing of is your pet chonky or fat, why don't we talk a little bit about your background? I'd like to have the audience hear really about where you're from, what's your deal, and a little bit about the organization that you started. Oh, yeah, you bet. And it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Um, You know, I'm one of those people that found my calling early in life. As I like to say, I knew I was going to be a veterinarian since I was knee high to a grasshopper. Uh, And I almost mean that literally. So when I was a very young child, I had a rather traumatic loss of a dog. I grew up in a rural farming type environment. Uh, One of my dogs, Taco, was accused of killing a neighbor's chicken probably was back in the day, you know, fences didn't really stop dogs. Uh, and uh, one night sound of a 12 gauge with buckshot rang out through the still South Georgia air. 
and taco passed in my arms as a very young child. And from that moment on, I knew that I would dedicate my life to helping preserve life. And, but, um, you know, that led me to really focus all of my energies on becoming a veterinarian. I went to the University of Georgia, go dogs, living in beautiful Athens, Georgia, where I was also able to explore my musical gifts. Uh, so I was in a punk rock band that wound up having a top 20 hit back in 1991. The song what band was that? The Violets was the band. And okay. the song was I Hate the Grateful Dead. Uh, you can look it up. It's There's a couple of videos out there. I It's amazing. And this year, our record company is re-releasing on Violet Vinyl for Record Store Day uh, some previously unreleased tracks that we did. But uh, regardless, I then moved with my wife. Uh, well, we weren't married at the time. We got married after shortly after we moved to North Carolina. And I've been practicing here since. So since 1992, I've been a veterinarian. I've done. A, I've had really the good fortune to do a lot of different things outside of clinical practice. Um, many people know, of course, what we're going to talk about today, my passion for nutrition and pet obesity that led me to found one of the more preeminent organizations dedicated to the fight against pet obesity, which is called the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention. You can check it out, petobesityprevention.org. And my latest you know, endeavor has been, uh, I've been a a vegan and vegetarian my entire adult life. Um, and so I now, I co-founded a plant-based dog food company. We're located in Berkeley, California. It's called Wild Earth. And so I'm really happy we brought to market cool. the world's first high-protein plant-based dog food. So check it out if you're into that kind of thing, Wild Earth. I certainly think there's a lot to do with that. My new book is out, came out in January. It's called The Clean Pet Food Revolution, How Better Pet Food Will Save the World. And really, it's an exploration into you know, the impact that pet food manufacturing has on climate change, on animal welfare, and on the health of our, our beloved pets. Because, you know, there's a lot of studies, of course, that have linked high meat diets with different you know, physical elements in people and dogs and, and even in cats. And so, you know, it's a really deep dive into all of that. But right, really what I think is so cool about this book is it examines the future technologies, the future food technologies that are going to completely transform, you know, how we eat. And you, you're starting to see that now with like Beyond Meat and Impossible Burgers. People are seeing KFC has plant-based chicken in China now, right? So there's all these exciting changes. And, and we really got to interview a lot of the people that we work with in the Bay Area, and they were so generous with their time and contributions to the book. So if you ever wanted to see sort of behind the scenes of all these fantastic pet food and uh, human food transforming you know, the world startups, it's really nice insight. Yeah, we've definitely seen over the past few years uh, at CatCon really a rise in what I would call more premium foods as far as really being able to distinguish what the ingredients are. Of course, these are not necessarily vegan plant-based foods, I would say, but really our audience really wants to define, you know, what is in right. their food uh, a bit more. And you're right, uh, Susan, and, and certainly we don't have a plant-based cat food yet. I mean, the technological hurdles are pretty significant. And so we're working, you know, in the biotech sphere to really bring some of these innovations that we're starting to see in the human food sphere over to things like cats. But cats are very, very challenging when it comes to a plant-based diet. Uh, we're, we 
got some pretty good ideas and we're working on some things that I, I can't wait to share with the world, uh, but it'll be another year. So, Cool. In talking today, you know, uh, there's that term chonky, which I'm sure you know. And despise. <laughs> um, in my world, it's a little bit different. In my world, chonky is a term of endearment. It's a bit affectionate, but, and I don't want to disparage uh, those who who love that term, but but I think that there needs to be a bit of a definition into what's cute and what's dangerous in terms of animal weight. Right. Well, and and first of all, we've got to you know as a society be very conscious about weight bias and stigmatism around obesity. And so sometimes terms like chunky, while they may start out with a good heart and a good intent, they actually are then used against that movement in particular. So, you know, I think that you have to be really careful about the language that you use because A, you can inadvertently offend people. Okay. So terms like chunky depends on the receiver, who you're saying it to in the context. You brought that up and I think that's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, I, and what I will say is there are various cats like Bruno Bartlett and Bronson the cat and this cat Cinderblock who was brought in um, recently to a vet, North Shore vet in, in Seattle. And, and they have made a great, great effort in slimming these cats down and using the word chonky to define what they were right. and getting them out of that definition. But again, everybody, I'm not disparaging what, no, no. what it means about your cat. It's, it's really defining what it means and, and really talking about what pet obesity is today. Right. But getting back to the term, first and foremost, we have to be sensitive to how people perceive language. So chunky in certain contexts might be perfectly acceptable and others could be deeply offensive. So we have yep. to be cautious. Number yep. two, what the real danger of terms like chunky, especially in a case, a tragic case like Cinderblock, is that it somehow dismisses the severity of the condition. So if we minimize, if we somehow soften this very serious medical condition by describing it in cutesy words, then sometimes people don't take it seriously. Now, for every cinder block out there, there are thousands of cats that never receive any help. There are thousands of cats that will suffer silently for the majority of their lives. So, you know, while Cinderblock is great and there can be some cute elements to it, and I'm not against that, I'm just saying that how do we reach those thousands of cats that have their quality of life robbed and their life expectancy shortened by a disease that could be prevented? Can you talk about what the uh, numbers are right now for, for cats and dogs in terms of obesity in the United States? Right. So every couple of years, the association, we work with a network of veterinary hospitals across the United States, hundreds of vet clinics, and they compile prevalence data on body condition score. Now, that's the fancy medical jargon for how we measure if your cat is a normal weight, is overweight, or as we're discussing today, has obesity. And obesity, again, is a clinical definition that is a disease. So when we do this every two years, what we found is a slow but steady creep in cat and dog obesity. And currently the latest data is about 60% of the U.S. cats are classified as overweight or obese and about 54 to 55% of the dogs. So this is, again, over half of our nation's pets are at risk. But here's where the data, you really want to go that next layer. Because it's very different between the two categories or cohorts, as we call them, in the dog and the cat world. So if we look at the dogs and you break it down by classification of overweight versus 
obesity, it's a much more trend towards just overweight. So we only see maybe 19% or so of the dogs that are actually classified as obese, having obesity. But then when you go to the cats, it's the exact opposite. The vast majority of cats aren't classified as overweight. The majority, the vast majority are classified with obesity. And we've been watching this now for 15 years. And so we see this trend line continuing the separation between the cat that's just a couple of pounds overweight versus the cat like cinder block that's 10 pounds overweight. That's the population that's growing the most. And that's the most concerning because now if you have a a normal, you know, domestic short hair, medium hair, long hair cat, a regular cat in America, a Moggy in the UK. So if you have one of those cats and it weighs 16 or 18 pounds, which is by all definitions, clearly significant obesity. Well, those are the cats that we're seeing grow at a greater, faster rate. And those are the cats that are at the greatest risk for developing diabetes, having crippling arthritis, high blood pressure, cancer, the list goes on. You know, a a lot of these cats that have come to the forefront have been surrendered or they have been with elderly people that, you know, just forget and they overfeed them. But, you know, if you're saying there's such a huge amount of the the cat population that are just obese in general, yeah, what is happening? So I wish it were just that simple, that it was just a matter of overfeeding, under-exercising. But we have to, from a scientific perspective, take a step back and go, okay, that's a lot of cats. There's a lot of people, you know, 64% or so of the adult population in the U.S. is overweight or has obesity. So what's going on here? And so you start to now drill down. You go, okay, yeah, a lot of people, a lot of pets are overfed, under-exercised. But then we look at things like genetics. Genetics play an important, essential role in how we maintain lean muscle mass. And so with cats and dogs, there are a couple of genetic areas that are of high interest in research. There's a couple of areas that we could talk about here today, but mainly in cats in particular have to do with starch metabolism and how they store fats. But so genetics, the second thing would be things like hormonal imbalances. And a lot of veterinarians sort of overlook this one because we think of things in terms of thyroid disease. And historically, your cat owners, the people watching this are going to say, oh, well, cats get hyperthyroidism, which is an overactive thyroid gland. So they lose weight. These are the skinny, hypervocal cats, right? Well, Yeah, but also we're talking about hormonal imbalances with cortisol. We're talking about hormonal imbalances that influence fat metabolism. So, And you're saying things that are the same for humans, right? Sex hormones, you know, these all play a role. And of course, most of our cats are spayed at an early age or neutered at an early age, disrupting their normal sex hormone production and metabolism and how it works within the organs. What we're also looking at are environmental pollutants. You've probably heard about like bisphenol A, BPA, and you probably- No, I have not. (laughs) You probably heard about BPA-free plastic. So a few years ago, this was all the rage. People were like, oh my gosh, I'm getting sick from my water bottles, right? So there was this big push to get BPA out of all plastics that were used for human food or liquid storage. Well, one of the reasons that we worry about BPA is these are called hormonal, they're endocrine disruptors, but BPA in particular can lead to obesity. Now, this has been well established in scientific literature, so the experiments stack up, but we know that cats, dogs, and people, and lab mice, and really any mammals so far that we've exposed them to, when they're exposed to tiny micro doses of BPA, 
tend to have more obesity. So, you know, again, environmental pollutants, we don't, you know, there's a lot of PFAS in water all across the country. Michigan, Detroit has lead. I mean, so there are things in the environment, like in the water here, that could be contributing to it. And then finally, you know, there are many, many medical conditions and more and more we learn about that actually can disrupt the way the body metabolizes proteins and carbohydrates and fats, again, leading to obesity. Uh, you know, of course, cats also, if they're inactive, you know, due to arthritic pain, which we know the, that a predominant number of, of cats have sure. arthritis. And so you know, all those things slow down. But I really want to focus back on the one, because oh, let's be honest, Susan, all the stuff I just listed, we're- It's beyond our control. We're powerless. Right, exactly. So let's get back to what we can control. And that's the feeding behaviors that we create within our home environments, the exercises that we can or cannot do with our cats. You know, what are the things that we can look for medically to maybe help? So that's really where I'd like to, to talk with your listeners about. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I also want to take a little bit of a step back. When does Chubb become obese? Right. Yeah. And in a dog and a cat. And it's not clearly defined. And so one of the things that the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention set out to do about five years ago now was to actually get standard consensus around the globe amongst veterinarians about what these definitions were. If you go back four or five years, there were at that time three competing body condition score scales. Remember I told you that's what your vet looks at to sort of distinguish between a normal weight and obesity? Well, it sounds it, very similar to like what we have for ourselves, BMI. you know, if we, our BMI. Right, right. So it's a similar scale and it has limitations and, but, you know, by and large, it gets you in the ballpark. It gets the conversation started. And so that's why we think it has tremendous utility. So we set out to standardize that, standardize the definition of obesity, believe it or not, up until recently, up until we did something, which I'll describe in just a second, we didn't have a consensus around the definition of obesity. And then finally, to declare obesity as a disease, uh, this was a big step for veterinarians in the recognition of this problem. So we set out uh, about four years ago, we wrote a, con- a position statement. We now have 25 of the world's largest uh, and arguably most influential veterinary organizations that have signed on in agreement. Uh, and so we're really starting to push this. So what is obesity? Obesity in general terms is a dog or a cat that has as a minimum of 30% above their normal ideal weight. Now, this is the stickiest part of this equation because obviously chihuahuas are different than Great Danes or different than Maine Coons in a domestic short hair cat. So there's a lot of variation in the animal kingdom. So we started off by looking at what they had done in the human literature, and that's where they start with humans. So when you're 30% above your ideal normal weight, and again, there's a six foot eight person is going to be very different than me at five foot eight. So, you know, we, we sort of look at those norms going back to the BMI, as you say. And then we said, we've got to standardize this BCS scale. We now have it slimmed down, so to speak, pun intended, to a one in five scale. And your veterinarian takes a couple of measurements and then they put you on this little spectrum and we get you in the ballpark. So typically we can give you a pretty good assessment of obesity. And this leads us back to, well, why are so many more cats diagnosed with obesity than dogs? Well, you nailed it already, Susan, and a lot of it has to do with physical activity and interaction because dogs typically live a lifestyle that promotes more lean muscle mass formation and maintenance because we do walk them. We do play with them outdoors. They do run in the yard or in the park, right? Whereas cats typically are confined indoors in the United States, meaning that they don't get the 
anaerobic and aerobic activities that they need. And so a lot of those extra calories, instead of building muscle and bone, go straight to fat. So would you say that it is important to spend a few minutes every day playing with your cat? Absolutely. Just just do that stimulation. Even if your cat is like, listen, honey, (laughs) I need my 23.5 hours of sleep. Get out of my face. It's important to even get them an extra five minutes. Right. And I'll tell you, it's really simple. And we've looked at the literature and, you know, I've written books on this over the years. But when you look at the, the science behind it, Dogs and cats utilize different energy systems, which is why dogs are opportunistic scavengers. They co-evolved with humans, incidentally, to go out and roam the savannas. And actually, it has to do with not only just how we utilize energy, but how we expend heat, how we expend our energy in the form of heat. So the cooling mechanisms of dogs and, and humans are very different than cats, for example. So dogs and humans rely on fatty acids as their primary energy source. Fatty acids, you can store them, of course, in fat. You can store them in, in, you know, throughout your body. And you can have quite, you know, hours and hours, maybe days of energy reserves in fats. But cats use glycogen as their primary energy source because cats evolved as apex predators, as predators who basically stalk using very little energy. They hang out somewhere hiding. And then when they see prey or prey opportunity, they expend a tremendous amount of energy. Think the cheetah or the tiger or the lion just pouncing and then chasing down at the rapid speed and bringing down the gazelle, right? Or the bird or whatever it might be. So expending tremendous amounts of energy in a short amount of time, that's where you use sugars. So glycogen is stored in the liver primarily. It's also stored in skeletal muscle. So the energy systems are very different, which gets me back to why I mentioned this in the first place. Cats don't jog. I've, I've said this you know thousands of times in my career, but that simple statement clearly articulates the difference between dogs and cats. Humans and dogs, we do jog. We're great at jogging for days. I do Ironman, you know, it takes 12 hours to do in some races. And so I'm able to do that because I can store up the fats in my body and utilize fatty acids as my primary energy source. Cats are designed to use those high intense bursts of energy. They don't, you know, and this, and what's really interesting when you study cat uh, physiology is that's why, you know, cats can hold up for 45 to 90 seconds and they've got to have three to four hours of recovery. Why are they recovering? To replenish that sugar glycogen storage in their liver and skeletal muscle. It's fascinating, but it means that cats just, you can't exercise them the way you should. So what you should do is engage that inner predator by three four or five minute play periods a day. And what you're trying to do is tap into that, that really deep instinct that says, I need to hunt. I need to stalk. I need to predate. Right. And this is why I love like uh, doc and Phoebe's things like, you know, the, the little, the little uh, mouse, you know, you put the food and the fake mouse and these little, you know, I love snuffle mats for dogs, things like anything we can do to, we, we call it enrichment, but what we're really trying to do is tap into instinct. And that's what I want you to do with your cat two or three times a day. Play with them for a few minutes. Chase a feather dancer or a laser pointer, whatever. Yeah, Pet Stages, Outward Hound, they also have a lot of great toys just for that stimulation. And, and to the, your point, just literally the feather dancer is is something that gets my cat going. And my cat's 15 and, yep. you know, she wants to sleep a lot. But and she's she's very fit. You saw my dog. He's not mm-hmm. so fit right now. But are there certain 
breeds that are predisposed to being overweight? Great question, and absolutely. As I mentioned before, genetics play an essential role in the development of obesity. And one of the areas in the gene that we're looking at that impacts the brain is an area that motivates what we call food drive. And food drive, honestly, is the trainability of the dog or the cat. And if you think about it in terms of how we have selected domestic animals, we've selected animals that we could train, whether it's a horse to ride, a cow to go in the field and graze and allow us to milk it, you know, or a dog to provide companionship or security, right? So whatever that thing is, cats, not so much, right? But regardless, trainability is is a factor in whether or not we breed that dog. And so there's been intensive research over the past decade to find out where in the brain, where in the genes, how does this all play into trainability and in food drive? And we found clearly that dogs that have multiple copies of a specific area on the genome that are coded now, we believe, for the food drive are more likely to develop obesity. That research is beginning in cats. What we can say with scientific certainty at this time is that there are certainly families of dogs that are more predisposed to developing obesity, and there may be breeds. We just don't have a wide enough data set yet to make a conclusive statement, but the the evidence is stacking up in that direction. If I'm concerned about my, my dog's weight, my cat's weight, When do I take them to the vet? Oh, I love that question. That's my favorite question in the world. And my answer is, number one, you should be going to your veterinarian once or twice a year just for a general checkup because that's what we're doing. And quite frankly, Susan, if your veterinarian isn't doing two very, very vital things, find another vet. The first is they should be assessing your dog or cat's body condition. Of all the things you can do to help your cat or dog live a longer life, a a pain-free life, a disease-free life, a high-quality life, it is going to be to evaluate and help you maintain a healthy weight. Just plain and simple. The evidence is just irrefutable on this. So if your vet doesn't do that, and if your vet doesn't do the next thing, talk to you about what are you feeding? Tell me about your your lifestyle. What kind of treats? How often do you walk? Do you play with a feather duster or laser pointer with your cat? If they aren't having that kind of level of interaction with you, find a vet who is willing to, because Susan, this is life and death, right? I mean, this is quality of life. This is allowing your pet to live to its optimal potential. And I just, as a veterinarian who has dedicated their lives to preservation of health and avoidance of disease, you know, if that's, if the vet can't take the time to do that, find another veterinarian. There are plenty of veterinarians who are passionate about these things. And, you know, again, I love the fact that that I can do amazing surgeries on cancer patients, that I can give chemo drugs, right? That I can help with a, a dog who's got a failing heart. I love all of that. But those are interventional steps, right? So something has happened. Now I've got to fix it. Me personally, my mission in life is to avoid those situations from happening whenever possible. If I'm worried that my pet is is overweight, before I go down that road, what are some of the things that I can do? Especially right now, a lot of us are going to be in stay-at-home orders for at least another month or so. Who knows how long? But uh, what are some of the things we can do now for our pets? Yeah. And that's a great question. First and foremost, uh, you'd be surprised the number of veterinarians offering telemedicine services. And again, we've got tons of those kind of resources and questions you should ask on petobesityprevention.org. So let's say you look at our charts. The first thing you're going to notice on there is we've got tons of 
feeding guidelines. And so you can do your own calculations. We've done the calculations for you. But the first thing you want to do is actually go back and assess how many calories you're feeding your dog or cat a day. And this is a great time if you're in a stay-at-home situation because you can actually just take two seconds. And I, I tell people, you know, I used to always want you to write it down. Now I say, take a picture with your smartphone. Like how easy can I make it? But at the end of the day, you just sort of look at the pictures of all the times you gave your dog or cat something, and then you can sort of get an idea. You can do some math and figure out how many calories they were eating. Now for cats in particular, you know, when people feed their cat an all day buffet, And you know what I'm talking about, people. And that is where you just fill up a bowl of dry kibble and you leave it out all day because somehow you've been brainwashed into thinking that cats are grazers. They are not. They are predators. They love to hunt and they hunt as many times a day as they need to get their calories, right? But a lot of the big cats only hunt a couple of times a day, if that. And so, you know, let's calculate the number of calories. Let's get rid of the all-day buffet. Let's start to put down the cat's food and pull it up after 30 minutes. People always say, oh, you can't train a cat to eat like that. Well, I can tell you I've done that with hundreds, if not thousands of cats in my career. My own cats eat that way. All of my patients eat that way, or at least they say they do. (laughs) But regardless, you can totally train a cat to say, this is dinner time. This is breakfast time. My favorite meal is the midnight snack, which is really important because remember, when people say cats don't eat on a schedule, think about when cats actually do eat in the wild. What does their instinct say? They eat primarily hunt at death. Nocturnal. That's right. So, you know, they already on this schedule. So we're just tapping into it, but really calculate the calories and then look on our schedules. And we have different ways to step down. We call it the step weight loss plan. So most vets will reduce the calories gradually. Uh, And that's a really good starting point. So if you're at home and you're wondering what you can do, calculate the number of calories you're feeding right now, and then take a look at some of our guidelines and you may need to reduce by a little bit. Yeah, I, I've heard many a theory about putting food all over the house for the cat. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you could still do that, but you need to do the measuring and then still pull it up. Yep. So I, I recommend using little soy sauce bowls, okay, the little tiny bowls. Oh, uh, that's a good idea. Yeah, and we call it find the food. And so it typically works best with one or two cats, uh, more cats than that. And you don't really know who's eating what, but um, so we just take the little soy sauce bowls and I have three of them that we use regularly with our cats. And they just, you know, we kind of, there's really no rhyme or reason. It's sort of random, but quite frankly, you know, these cats, one of our cats is 15 years old, like yours. And so, you know, I'm pretty sure she's figured out all our tricks, but you know, regardless, it just engages that inner predator. It taps into that deep instinct. And I'm trying to say, Hey, you know, go work for your food because dogs and cats want jobs. They have this deep, deep, you know, DNA drive to go out and find their stuff. And we got to do that. If we make it too easy, they, that leads to frustration, anxiety, all the behavioral problems that we typically see. I do want to touch though on exercise because I think people have a couple of misconceptions. Number one, all dogs need about 30 minutes minimally of aerobic activity a day. And aerobic is just a brisk walk, but it needs to be a structured time. A lot of people, you know, in my first book, Chow Hounds, that came out way out in 2010, you know, I, we did a study and we measured people in dog parks walking their dogs. So round trails and whatever, we measured their pace. And we found that most people are engaged in walking at a very, very pedestrian turtle snail pace. Okay. So they're walking like 22, 24 minute miles. And really you're not getting the aerobic benefits. You're getting some benefits. Don't get me wrong, but this is such a leisurely stroll 
that it's really more of an emotional connection and benefit than actually a physiological one. For cats, as we mentioned before, three, two to three, but three is ideal five minute play periods a day. Some cats naturally fall into these, these patterns. I have a cat, Itty Bitty. I mean, she, it's like clockwork, right? I mean, they're- Is that your cat's name? Yes. Itty Bitty Kitty. Uh, she is Itty Bitty. She's nice and skinny. She's been thin her whole life. Uh, but that was my children when they were much younger, they named her that. We have Harry and Jenny. So Harry Potter fans already know what uh-huh. that reference is. So, and they're border terriers from England. So they're not actually. <laughs> oh, my, England, I, I like that name. I like that name. My cat's name is Miss Kitty Pretty Girl. So I like oh. to hear Itty Bitty. Yeah, Itty Bitty. Kitty. Kitty. Yeah, I like it. But uh, three to five minutes. So Itty Bitty actually, you know, it's like clockwork. She she comes to us. And if we aren't really ready to play, you know, she's like, come on, you know, it's my time. So uh, whatever it is, find that thing your cat wants to do. And I tell people, even if it's a paper bag, even if it's a box, right, it doesn't matter. Just give your cat some kind of enrichment, some novelty in their life that they can actually engage that inner predator. And sometimes it's just hiding in that box, you know, or getting in that bag. I mean, cats just thrive on those environments and they're burning a few calories. Let's talk about exercise during quarantine. Is there anything that we can do in the house with the dogs in terms of additional exercise? Yeah, Susan, that's a really great, great point. And during these times, I will say it's probably more important than ever for our mental and physical well-being to actually get outside and take a walk with our dogs whenever permissible. But there are times and situations where you can't get outside. So what can you do? And and nothing will replace, you know, that 20 minute walk around the block or in the park. But what you can do is set aside the time. I think that where people are going wrong right now during stay at home orders is they're not continuing to keep on schedule. We're staying in our pajamas till 3 p.m., right? We're eating at irregular hours. And dogs and cats thrive on regimen. They want a routine. They they need this. This is in their instinct. These are creatures whose lives are governed by the cycles of the sun. Uh, For dogs, one of my favorite things, and it works a little bit with cats, it's tapping into that, find the food, but basically you take the food or a treat and you put it in like a a jar or something, however you want to do it. You show the dog, you're going to hide it, you know, under the couch cushion, whatever, right? You then take your dog into the other room and you let them go. Now, some dogs catch on very quickly and they go and they find it right away. Other dogs are like, okay, now what? You know, so you have to kind of teach them, but what you're doing again is engaging in that, that, that instinct of scavenging. They are opportunistic scavengers. They love to hunt and find things. So that's like a super easy thing. Uh, You know, we talk about doing, right now is a great time to teach your dog a new trick. Yeah. Also, you know, in another episode we just did working from home, we talked with a vet from Annenberg Pet Space, and she also gave us some great ideas too, how to engage them and some ideas for both cats and dogs. So, you know, I have a couple more questions before we wrap up. How do you gently tell a friend that their dog or cat is obese. Yep. And needs to get some help. Yep. Uh, and and whether it's a friend relationship, a veterinarian to a pet parent relationship, this is a very sensitive topic, which is why at the beginning, you know, I mentioned weight bias and stigmatism since right. around. It's a big deal. I, I don't want to go up to somebody and say, "Hey, hey, your dog. Your cat, ah. your cat has yeah. got an issue." It's not my place. It's it's their animal. Right. So the first, I'll, I'll, I'll take this in two uh, buckets here. The first would be if it's a friend or acquaintance, and the second would be a professional relationship, because I think you have some responsibilities as a pet parent that maybe we don't always think about. So the first thing is, you're absolutely right, Susan. It's not your place to really get in and tell them how to be a pet parent. Um, if it's 
causing harm, then you certainly should raise that. So if you feel like the animal is suffering, then yeah, I think you have sort of a, a you know moral obligation, in my opinion, to to say something about it. But that's rare and extreme, and even difficult to discern when it does happen. So the first thing I tell people is, look, you know, if you're concerned about it enough. Is there some third party? Can you talk to the spouse or the significant other? Is there, you know, can you talk to the, like, for example, I have a friend, this situation came up just a few months ago, their mother, which you, I love that you let into this earlier, has early dementia. She's completely overfeeding their cat. I mean, like extraordinarily overfeeding their cat. And so, you know, she was like, how do I tell my mom this? And so what we wound up was we devised, she has a, um, a, caretaker that comes in her home three times a week now. And I said, look, can we somehow start to set a schedule out where we teach the the mother that she feeds certain days of times? And so we actually went through the caretaker and she wrote out a schedule. She put it on her refrigerator and on the days where there was like a strawberry, which just oddly enough was the marker they had <laughs> with his days of a strawberry, you know, she didn't give any treats kind of thing. So because this lady was giving these, these, um, uh, appetizers. I don't want to get into name brands, but she was giving, you know, just. And she didn't know. She didn't. forgot. But the daughter felt uneasy. So we went through a third party, which sort of softened and, and preserved the relationship. So yeah, I agree, Susan. It's kind of always a tough step. You know, I really don't want some stranger off the street ever coming up to me and say, hey, I don't like the way you're taking care of your dog, unless I'm causing harm. But the more important relationship is when a professional tells you. So a veterinary technician, a veterinarian, your veterinarian, a veterinarian says, hey, Susan, you know, I'm, I'm worried about your dog. And, uh, and I think at that point, I've written so much about how to have that conversation with vets. And the basic tenets of that conversation are to, number one, lead with compassion. So whenever I'm delivering news like this, especially giving critical feedback, I want to say, I know, Susan, I know how much you care about your dog. I mean, it's obvious. I mean, your whole world seems to revolve around them. But I, I do need to talk to you about a serious condition that I'm concerned about, and that is your dog's weight. And, you know, certainly we all start to bristle when people say things like that. But where I'm going with this is because you care so much, I know also that you're concerned about how long your dog will live. Will it develop diseases that I could avoid or prevent, you know, with some simple changes in my life? Can I make them happier? And so I try to tap into your natural love for and care for your dog or your cat. And then we start the conversation there. I also tell veterinarians, be patient. Every person is not going to be ready for that conversation at that time. I can't tell you the number of clients over the years that I broached the topic. They shut me down. I re- Retaliation. I respectfully back away. And then two years later, I get a random phone call booking an appointment with me to talk about it. So, you know, sometimes people just take longer to, to accept it or adapt to it or whatever it may be. But I also tell vets to be patient and don't feel rejection, right? So as a veterinary professional, just if you turn me down and you say, no way, I'm not interested, I can't say, see that as a failure. But I did mention some responsibilities of the pet parent. Number one, receive this information with the way it was intended, and that is with compassion. Your veterinarian Trust me, they are scared to death to broach this topic with you. And so if they are courageous enough to say, I'm worried about your pet's weight, then just sit back and civilly and respectfully respond to that. I have had many, many clients in my career say, you know, this is ridiculous. You know, this is stupid. You know, my, my dog's a happy dog or whatever. You know, that's fine. I get it. But don't lead with that kind of anger and antagonism. Just respectfully accept it. And you can respectfully 
deny. You can say, hey, you know, doc, I really appreciate your concern, but right now I'm, I'm really not interested in changing my dog's food. Everything's going fine as far as I can tell. If I have a problem, I'll let you know. Honestly, if you tell me that, I will respect that. Now, if, I, I, you know, if you're vet, then persist. I think that's an issue in and of itself. But yeah. you know, we need to have this civil conversation and we are losing the ability to have cordial interactions. I think we're seeing this in the media. I think we see this with our leadership too often where people, we're, we're, it's a shouting match, right? That's not how society works best. You know, we shouldn't be engaging in debate. I'm not trying to beat you or convince you. My job as a medical professional is to inform you. You then make the decisions that you feel are appropriate for your condition, your situation, your life. And I'm I, again, I have to respect that. I think that I just want people to have these conversations, Susan. That's why when you asked me to be on here, I was like, let me talk to your your listeners because I want people to engage in this conversation because if we don't address it, if we don't have the awareness and if we don't talk about it, we can't change it. I, I do have one more question. You know, can you make recommendations of, of types of food to promote better health? I know we can't talk about yeah. brands and things like that, but but are there certain specifics that we can talk about uh, for dogs and cats that are beneficial overall. Yep. It's, it's, I love this question. And so in general terms, you know, it boils down to the individual, but if we look at where the evidence has landed over the past decade in particular, we find that higher protein, lower carbohydrate diets in general promote weight loss and maintenance of lean muscle mass. Having said that, there are certainly plenty of cases that I've personally dealt with that do better on a higher fiber, lower protein diet, right? So you have to find that perfect formula for that pet, but that's the general starting point. It does boil down to calories, Susan. People don't like to count calories and we're not asking you to, but we are asking your veterinarian to calculate the number of calories and then tell you exactly how much or prescribe how much food to dispense, how many feedings and treats and so forth. That's really, you know, it's not that hard. The beauty of dealing with dogs and cats is it is in a controlled, a fairly controlled environment. You know, they don't rush off. They don't get candy at the store behind your back. You know, they can't stop by the fast food restaurant on the way from home. You know, so we are in control, which I think that is satisfying. At the end of the day, though, that's also the most perplexing because this is where vets, uh, you know, feel like they're judging the client. Like you said, you know, the people are like, no way, screw that, you know, but the reality is we're just trying to help. So the broad sweeping, higher protein, lower carb tend to do better. Calories count the most. And then we mix in a little bit of exercise. And I'll tell you the simple formula for weight loss for dogs and humans. Okay. It's about 60 to 70% diet and only 30 to 40% exercise. I've heard that many times. For cats, it's 90% food and only 10% exercise. So when people always say, how do you help a cat lose weight? It starts and ends at the food bowl. How do you help a dog lose weight? It's mainly in the kitchen, but we got to get out to the park. To that point, what about those that are at the dinner table and they throw their dog a scrap? They throw their dog a little bit of bread. They throw their dog this and that. Does that need to stop? 
Yeah, I'm not anti-treats. I'm not anti-sharing food. I'm anti-sharing junk treats and junk foods. And so when people say, well, can I share a little bit of my dinner with my dog? It depends. Depends on what it is. If it's starchy, no. If it's vegetables, absolutely, right? You know, and when it comes to treats, again, we want to make sure that we are looking at the number of calories in those treats. I call them calorie grenades because these little bitty treats are so packed with fats and sugars that the calorie counts climb. And before you know it, that little bitty soft little sausagey looking thing, that's an entire day's worth of calories for your chihuahua. So, you know, we really have to get back to counting calories. I love things like baby carrots, sliced zucchini and cucumbers, sweet potatoes as a topper for foods. I mean, those are the kind of things that I lean into because they give the most nutritional value with the least number of calories. And that's it for this episode of Let's Get For Real. You can find us at letsgetforreal.com. That's letsgetfurreal.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We want to hear from you and see how you and your pets are doing. Please email us at hello at letsgetforreal.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Our team includes Avishai Artsy, Roxana Dunlop, and me, Susan Michaels. Stay safe and give your pets an extra cuddle today. <laughs>